regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi listeners, this is Datacast, where we'll long-form and in-depth conversation with data practitioners to unpack the narrative journeys of the career. My guest today is Chad Sanderson, the current data head of product at Convoy. Previously, he worked on Microsoft's AI platform team and led data initiatives at Sephora and Subway. He has built everything from feature stores, experimentation platforms, matrix layers, streaming platforms, analytics tooling, data discovery system, and workflow different platforms. So Chad, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Absolutely. So by way of introduction, I just want to start a call with a little bit about your personal background before you get into this whole space. So I believe that for college, you study writing and linguistic at Georgia Southern University. And then after college, you actually travel across Southeast Asia and you work as a freelance journalist. So could you mind sharing some of these formative experiences of your early career? Sure. So my dad was a literature teacher, American literature. So I grew up reading a lot of books and writing a lot. And that was my initial career goal was actually to be an editor or a creative writer, either for a magazine or like a freelance novelist or something like that. I actually took a course in college where we started talking about potential opportunities within writing. And I realized relatively quickly that doing anything creative around writing would be pretty, pretty challenging. So I made a pivot into journalism. And the first job I had out of college was actually a, a journalism role in Thailand. I flew over there, got bought like a $500 plane ticket. And uh, I was staying in a really rundown apartment. And every weekend I would go to a stadium and cover the martial arts events that were happening there. And I would write about it in English and then various magazines would pick it up and I would publish it on my own website on the internet. I had a lot of super interesting experiences there. I learned how to hustle, learned how to really focus for a long period of time on one thing. I would write one or two stories every other day, which is a pretty tremendous amount of volume. I would just sit down churning this stuff out. Uh, And then the other thing it did was it made me pretty adept at being able to ask good questions. When you're a journalist, you have to get to the most interesting part of a story. So both the truth, but also a narrative. When you're writing, you can't simply report the facts exactly as they are. Sometimes you can do that, but people want a story. They want something that's just not a a list of information, but it ties that information cohesively into something that they can take away. I would say that was a pretty formative part of my 
early journey and what led to me eventually building those types of narratives within the data space. Yeah, thanks for sharing the context of that. Really like building up that hustle mentality and ability to craft good narratives throughout that experience. Maybe just a quick touch on that. Like, how do you think this skill set really benefit you as you later move to data space in, in how did that manifest into day-to-day work? I think writing is one of the biggest benefits that any technical person can have, whether you're in data or software engineering, you're a designer, or even if you're a non-technical person, like a product manager or a marketer. Writing is the thing that lets you very accurately communicate your ideas your philosophy, your hypothesis on if you make some investment, what's going to happen is incredibly important to be a good writer if you're trying to lead a team or to convince the business to make investments in projects that you believe are impactful. The other thing that was very valuable was it helped me ask the right questions and create a framework for getting to the heart of an issue. If you're trying to solve a problem as a product manager, the best way to do that is by talking to people and by asking them questions. The five whys is one common methodology. But it's not just about asking one person really good questions. It's about seeing the patterns between multiple people, being able to identify those patterns and then connect them into a single narrative and then being able to tell that story through writing. I would say those are the two skills that really helped me out a lot. And I got to refine those skills when I was working as a journalist. And then when I started moving into the data space, I began applying those focused on products and not martial arts stories. Thanks for providing that context. So let's talk about your entry to the world of data. I believe that was actually via the field of conversion rate optimization. And namely, we work at a small place called Grugrate in Northern Georgia and then also at Oracle. Can you walk through that transition and some of the learning curves that you encounter along that transition from journalism into analytics? So conversion rate optimization was my first stop in data and analytics. And that, that was an interesting job. So Grugrate was a physical goods company. They made a sort of metal surface that sits on top of your gas grill. And that metal surface was designed in such a way that it would very evenly heat up your food. It was an awesome invention. I actually still have it in my house. It makes my steaks and fish super delicious. But what Grillgrate really lacked at the time was any investment in data. Their website was very basic. They didn't really know how customers were using their website. They didn't have a mobile app. And so I joined that company to essentially stand up their early analytics, to begin doing analysis on their digital properties, and then start taking advantage, essentially start making suggestions on where we can improve the conversion rates. So conversion, if you're not familiar, is essentially the process of a customer entering into some type of procurement funnel either buying a product or adding a a product to their cart or downloading an app. There's some event that we are trying to optimize for. And so the conversion rate is the number of times that that event happens over the number of customers that actually could potentially take that event. 
So there's a whole field of conversion rate optimization where people specialize in different areas that could potentially affect those conversion rates. So there's specialists that focus only on copywriting. Like how do you write copy for a website in a way that motivates people to, to buy products? There's user research and user testing groups that focus on how do we redesign our UX systems in a way that sort of facilitates maximum usability. Uh, and, and then there's experimentation. So I focus on all three of those areas to start with analytics as my entry point. And then over time, I decided to get more granular and I began explicitly focusing on experiments and experiment data. Absolutely. I think that's a great transition to dive a bit deeper into kind of draw your foray into this whole field of experimentation. So between 2017 and 2019, you led experimentation teams at Subway, Sephora, and Microsoft. My question is twofold. Firstly, how did you decide to go deeper into the field of experimentation? And secondly, what did you learn about working with stakeholders to establish an experimentation culture in these large organizations? Yeah, so the reason I chose experimentation is, is I, I wanted to move pretty quickly to a senior position within technology. I come from journalism. I didn't have a tech background. I didn't want to spend a long period of time at the entry level. And the way that I structured my career was to find a technical niche, to specialize in that niche. Mm. And then the number of applications for specialists in that particular niche at any company is quite small. So the amount of competition that I have when applying to a more well-known tech brand like Microsoft would go down pretty substantially. So that was my plan from the beginning. Analytic and sort of a general CRO conversion rate optimization was an entry point to that. Experimentation is a subset of CRO. And I would say experimentation is one of the more technical and statistics heavy aspects. Conversion rate optimization, it requires a knowledge of A-B testing, of how you construct a hypothesis, of how you derive statistical values, um, like a T statistics and confidence intervals and things like that. And the running of experiments at scale is not a skill set that a lot of people have. So I decided to specialize in that at my time at Real Great. I applied for a job at Oracle to work on their marketing. Oracle has a marketing cloud. And within that marketing cloud, they have an experimentation software called Maximizer. So I worked as a consultant for that group in the sense that I would consult or it could be customer success, maybe in, if, I, if that's the more modern job title, but the, our customers would be running experiments. And then my job was to come in with my statistics knowledge, my knowledge of the platform and my knowledge of experimentation and help them design their experiments, make sure that they were run correctly, make sure that they were doing proper analysis. And in some cases, I would actually do the analysis myself. I'd set up like various cohorts for them. Yeah, so that's how I got started in experimentation. And then to your second question of how do you set up a culture of experimentation, that was really the focus of my job after Oracle. When I was working at Oracle, I was in New York City. And Subway Corporates is in a town called Milford, Connecticut, which is quite small. And they were in the process of going through a digital transformation. And that meant 
over a hundred Accenture consultants on the ground trying to help them shift a lot of their data into the cloud, rebuild some of their engineering workflows. So that's in the cloud as well to move them to all of their modern technologies. And part of that transition was running an experimentation program. They brought me in even with only a few months of experience, because it's really hard to get people to move down from New York to Milford, Connecticut. And I, I set up the platform. I set up the infrastructure to facilitate their experimentation at scale. I came up with all the analytics, best practices. I actually instrumented their websites and their mobile application. And then we started running experiments on our team with the assumption, you know, if we can prove value of what all this experimentation stuff actually is to Subway marketing teams and executives who had no idea, they never heard of experimentation. If we could show a few wins, then we would drum up a lot of excitement and potentially gain more resources for expanding the program, which is what happened. Yeah, perfect. So I guess two notes on this. Number one is like during job sort of specialization, a real great on experimentation. What have been some of the useful resources for you coming from a non-technical background to learn statistics and mathematics and all these concepts? I can't offer anything mind-blowing. I would just say YouTube was uh, where I spent a lot of my time. I would go on YouTube, I would do courses, I'd watch videos, and I just started with the basics. Like, how does statistics work? What is hypothesis testing? How do you set up an experiment? What's a control group? What's a treatment group? And I began very simple. And uh, every time somebody said a term that I didn't know, I would go out into the World Wide Web. I'd look that terminology up. I'd write it down in a notebook. And then every day I would review that notebook and I'd say, okay, this is what this term means. This is what this process means. I, I did that for a few months mm -hmm. and just getting familiar with the foundations and then when I was at Oracle, when I started using R for the first time, and I wanted to understand myself, how some of the statistics worked, how the packages worked, what it looked like to generate like a statistically valid result. And that led me down another rabbit hole, right? Because there's just hundreds and hundreds of different statistical models that you can run and experimental models that you can run. And it allowed me to develop this pretty a relatively comprehensive, I wouldn't say that I was ever a good data scientist, um, yeah. but I, as a non-technical person, I did have a, a pretty good understanding of how statistics worked and what sort of data could be trusted and what sort of models and frameworks could be trusted and what couldn't. And that was, I think, the most valuable part. Yeah, absolutely. It's just continuously following curiosity on this concept. Is anything that that is... Oscar to you, you just like, go down that, that, that rabbit hole. And you mentioned a little bit about like how do you have set up this whole experimentation platform at, at Subway. Later on, you, you went to Sephora and, and Microsoft and do the same thing, which is building this internal experimentation platform. I'm curious, this is very different environments, more consumer product to enterprise tech. Like, what do you observe to be the similarities and differences? setting up experimentation solution in-house? I would say the big differences across all the companies that I worked for were, number one, the maturity 
the data maturity and also the experiment maturity and the data science maturity. Number two, the investment in third-party SaaS software and internal um, applications that were built by software engineering teams. And then number three, maturity around just how you run business, like how you run the software engineering team, the product development team. Subway is not a company that is traditionally known for its amazing mobile applications. Like it, it was almost exclusively driving its revenue through its stores, its franchises. So it was really focused on how do you expand franchises and how do you get more franchisees to come on board and how do you test new sandwiches? So Subway was very raw. It was interesting. I got to see how you essentially set up a digital infrastructure really for the first time. Sephora was not like that. Sephora did invest in technology and has been invested in technology for a lot time for a long time. They've integrated a lot of personalization into their system. They actually had a pretty comprehensive workflow around experimentation when I already arrived. My job was to expand on that workflow, but everyone at the company already knew what experimentation was. People generally speaking knew how to use the tools and they knew what outcome, like how to interpret the outcomes. They were dedicated analysts just for interpreting results. So it certainly made things easier. It wasn't nearly as much of a zero to one operation. And then Microsoft was not using any external SaaS application for experimentation. It actually had a, a team and that team called the EXP team had built an internal product specifically to cater to Microsoft's use cases. So whereas the previous two roles, I would say are more along the lines of program manager or maybe like a, a product owner, I was a more of a product manager role at Microsoft where I'm working with the software engineering team, investigating customer problems, building a roadmap, writing documents that describe, hey, here's the things that we're going to go work on and why. So that was actually my first real taste of working in a, a pretty mature software engineering team at scale. Mm -hmm. And it, it very different. Obviously, the speed is very different. The complexity is much greater. You have to have a, a much deeper understanding of the applications that you're building and how they work. And you also need to think a lot deeper about technical team management in a way that I hadn't really ever thought about before. Yeah, thanks for sharing the evolution of your career across this organization. What do you observe? And we touch on this topic of, of experimentation in uh, if your question, given your current work at Convoy. But uh, let's talk about Convoy a little bit. So you have been the head of product for the data platform team since November 2019. And I believe they are based in Seattle, Washington. And the data platform team includes data warehouse, streaming, BI and visualization, experimentation, machine learning, and data discovery. Can you briefly share the technical details behind the evolution of Convoy's data platforms since you joined? Sure. I would say that the biggest evolution is the investment in product, specifically internal products. I joined Convoy mainly to run their experimentation platform team. They wanted to build a internal A-B testing product. So I had experience doing that at Microsoft and they, Microsoft is also in Seattle, of course. That was my initial responsibility. 
Um, I ended up taking on ownership from the product side of our machine learning platforms and also our big data platform team as well. And the way that I approached my work was essentially to replicate my process at uh, it, it, when I was a journalist, ask questions about what are the problems people had, go deep into under, like root causing those problems. And uh, essentially what we came up with was a set of product gaps that we felt didn't exist. And we began um, iteratively implementing those product gaps o- over time. We use a typical sort of modern data stack, AWS, Fivetran. We have a, a, something called a, a CDC change data capture system that pushes data from our production databases into Snowflake. We have a lot of tools on Snowflake like DDT, Amundsen for data discovery, Airflow for orchestration. But then the big change is the products that we've built on top of that sort of uh, third-party application and open source system. We built an experimentation platform from the ground up. We built a metrics repository from the ground up. We built a feature store. And then we've also built a, a custom instrumentation system that allows our uh, engineering partners to capture data and emit data directly from the services. And we build a events catalog that sits on top of that event data and allows people to search for the data that they need, request more data, and so on and so forth. I would say those are the biggest additions to the infrastructure. Absolutely. And before talking about some of the technical components, I'm curious from the head cow, like, how did the team grow in terms of roles to new people joining? Yeah, the, so the team is at about 15 or 16 people right now. I think we have a head counts that puts us around 18. Mm-hmm. To be honest, we haven't grown massively since I've been at the company, which has been around three years now. I joined in 2019. In 2020, we, everyone got hit by COVID. So mm-hmm. we didn't do a tremendous amount of, of hiring. Starting to come out of it in 2021, and so we're starting to bounce back on the hiring front. But then uh, the inflation really started going up. The war in Ukraine had a huge impact on gas prices. It had a big impact on the freight industry. People mm-hmm. aren't buying as many things anymore, and so now, uh, you know, because of that, we're slipping into a recession, and uh, and the freight economy is falling as well. So See. Uh, our team over three years, it hasn't really grown tremendously, but that wasn't due, I don't think, to anything that the company could control. Yeah. And so just a quick note for people who are not familiar with Convoy and the freight industry, can you just give a very sort of brief overview about it and, and the role of data within the business? Yeah, absolutely. So Convoy is a digital freight marketplace, and that means it is a application that sits between a shipper like Walmart or Starbucks that's trying to move freight from one facility to another and a carrier, which is a business that owns trucks, could be a single truck, could be hundreds of trucks. And those trucks use our application to bid on freight. So we have an auction-based model. Once they are awarded the freight, we give them all the details required to to pick the freight up and deliver it to the facility. We track the truck 
on routes to dropping the freight off. So we can report things like the ETAs back to the shipper. Um, mm -hmm. And because of the economy of scale, we have so many shipments in our marketplace at any point in time. Not only do we create a really robust and healthy ecosystem for our truckers and are always looking to move freight, but we ensure to the shipper that we're able to um, have freight shipped, even if it's really difficult to fulfill the load or it's going to a destination that a lot of people wouldn't take it to. So that's the core of Convoy's business model. Data is extraordinarily important to Convoy. Um, there are uh, businesses that are similar to what Convoy does. They're called freight brokers. These are very manual sort of ad hoc companies, right? They get called on the phone by a shipper. They answer the phone. Then they go through a black book of all of the carriers that they know. They call that carrier on the phone. They ask them if they can take the job. If the carrier has to cancel, then they get a phone call. They have to call another carrier. So there's really not that much that differentiates us from a typical freight broker without data. Data is what enables us to price shipments in our marketplace. It's what enables us to report on ETAs, to determine whether or not that a price we're offering in our marketplace is going to be margin positive for the company or not. Data essentially is what facilitates Convoy's entire business model. And so ensuring that the data is high quality, that it is accessible for analytics and machine learning, and that it is extraordinarily discoverable is a, is a big responsibility. Absolutely. Thanks for providing all the details about digital and the raw data. I'm curious. So in your role as the head of the data platform, do you, do you report to product or engineering or what? I report through engineering. Engineering. So you're part of the engineering. Yeah. The city of them. Yeah. So let's dissect some of the key technical components of the Convoy's data platform. Now, your team is a heavy user of the open source project Amazon for data discovery. Would you mind explaining the motivation for solving data discovery and the decision to go with Amazon? Sure. Amazon is a data discovery tool. It's open sourced. We are in the process of moving to the hosted version of Amundsen that's called Stemma. Hmm. Data discovery essentially acts as a metadata layer on top of your data warehouse. So it enables you to search for data sets, see who owns those data sets. You can preview what the data looks like and what are all the columns in any particular table. And this is really important because Convoy has a tremendous amount of data hundreds and thousands of tables. Some of those tables are very upstream. They're source tables, so they're capturing raw event data. Some of them are very downstream and they've been processed and transformed many times. It can be extraordinarily confusing for a data analyst or data scientist or business intelligence engineer that's trying to navigate the warehouse without a catalog that allows them to do one of the major benefits of Amundsen is that it makes that discovery and navigation and cataloging process very simple. It's a really easy integration. And the majority of our data team uses Amundsen on, on a regular basis. Now, the reason that we went with them, it was, because it was, it was an open source project. Mm -hmm. There weren't too many data catalogs 
back then a couple of years ago when we made that decision, which were small enough to solve the componentized problem that we really cared about. Yeah. We didn't want to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on a big pool like Alation. We could stand it up and test it very easily. And we liked the interface. The focus of Amundsen was search. And that aligned with my perspective that we didn't want to just expose all these data assets and let people stumble their way through them. We wanted to provide a very guided workflow. And, and since then, we've had a lot of people use the tool. I see. So it's really the, the strength of the product is better in the UX. And then, and the fact that you can easily get it adopted and incrementally solve your very niche problem without having to, and the fact that it's open source, right? So there's no associate cost right at the front. Thanks. Thanks for providing, providing that context. I, I want to touch base on the topic of experimentation again. Earlier this year, you get this talk at Data Council that kind of walked through the different experimentation challenges at Convoy and present some of the key elements of a flexible experimentation platform. Yeah. Can you just share some of the most relevant takeaway in that talk? The most relevant takeaway from Data Council that I was trying to communicate anyway is that setting up your own experimentation system is quite challenging. And that it's oftentimes not enough to rely solely on an external vendor. And this has been the pattern in the experimentation industry for some time now, is there's not that many vendors that allow simple experimentation. Those that do focus more at the, the CDP level, is the customer data platform. So this is front end experimentation, like you can easily change copy on a website or potentially remove images or change images around. It's like an integration with the DOM layer. You have some WYSIWYG that you can use and, and move these things. That's the industry standard. But if you look at the companies which have been doing experimentation for a long time, Google, Microsoft, Twitter, Airbnb, Uber, the way that they experiment is a focus on the entities which are most meaningful for their business, not just the ones that are present in the customer data platform, like customers and sessions. So in Convoy's case, we really care about things like shipments and shippers and lanes and geographies, contracts, RFPs, facilities. None of those things, or at least a very large percentage of those entities, cannot be captured through a pure front-end layer. You have to access the data directly on the warehouse. You have to, or you have to capture this data from production tables. You have to pipe it into the warehouse as like a, as essentially as a source table, as a dimensional table. And then you have, your experimentation layer has to sit on top of that data and it, it has to read it. You also be, have to randomize or assignments is what the technical term is, which means returning one version of your experiment experience to a certain percentage of, of that entity type and another version to the other entity type. And so you can think about that. And instead of just going out and buying an experimentation tool, you should list out all of your use cases. What is most valuable to run experiments on? What are the entities that are most critical from your business? What has the highest ROI? What are the metrics that you actually need to analyze? Do you just need to analyze metrics on the front end, like being able to count 
the number of people who click an add to cart button? Or do you need to report on more back-end warehouse-centric metrics like margin or profit, which you have to derive by combining many different data sources together? And that was the core of my talk is like really think about the state of your business yeah. um, instead of just buying a tool without thinking about what you need and what's most valuable. Yeah. It's really elucidating that there's different layers of complexity, reality experimentation as well, right? From simple queries that you can write to like more sophisticated statistical questions that you can ask. Yeah. Thanks for providing that context. Now, your team also use an internal change management platform called Chassis, which is a source of truth for definition of events, entities, and relationship. First of all, can you talk a little bit about some of the problem with CDC, change data capture in the industry? And like, secondly, how did your team build out this Chassis platform in a way to avoid these problems? Sure. CDC, for anyone not familiar, stands for change data capture. It is essentially a mechanism of identifying when row-level changes occur in a production database, like Postgres is an example. This is what we use at Convoy. When those row-level changes occur, you push that data into the warehouse. So there are batch uh, ways of doing this. So you could do it via Fivetran a couple times a day or on-demand. You could capture all of the changes that happened within a production table and push it to the warehouse. And then there has to be some deduping that occurs. Or you could do it in more of a streaming-centric way. So um, this is what we used. We used a tool called Debezium. Anytime a row changed, we would stream that change directly into the warehouse and we would update the corresponding row in the raw table. The reason that this is really important is, especially if you need information in real time, you don't want to have to wait for days or 12, 10 hours to see that some particular shipment in Convoy's case maybe had a status that you didn't expect. There was some error in the application and no one in the warehouse knows about that. It's also just a really great way of getting our first party data into the warehouse. It's used for training machine learning models and, and many other applications. But there are some problems with change data capture. And one of them is the way that change data capture is handled today is it essentially captures everything in a production table, regardless of if that data is valuable for analytics or not. And in production tables, oftentimes production tables are simply the implementation details of the service, right? The engineer will put all the data that they need in order to run the application into their service databases. And so if there's undocumented data, if there's data that's not really relevant for the analytics or machine learning team, or if there's data that is relevant, but perhaps it's generated in a very complex, non-straightforward way, um, the warehouse will inherit all of that complexity and all of the corresponding tech debt. So it becomes much harder to build clear business context-rich tables based on this data without going all the way back to the source and talking to an engineer about exactly how they implemented these, these databases. And so the way that we thought about implementing this at Convoy essentially was to 
decouple our services from the data used for analytics. And the way that decoupling manifested was as something we call semantic events. And a semantic event is a real-world behavior, um, a snapshot of some action that happens. So in Conway's case, it might be a shipment was canceled or an RFP was completed or a contract was signed. These are all real-world behaviors. And those real-world behaviors were captured as schema. And so we'd capture this is the event that we care about. And here are all the associated attributes of that event, including primary keys and foreign keys, interesting attributes about the event itself. And we want that in real time. And we want to do that through Kafka so that we get a nice event history, basically an audit log of everything that happened to that entity over a a period of time. We actually had two pieces of software that enabled this. The first was something we called the UEDF or Unified Events Definition Framework. (laughs) This was an SDK that... It was, it's leveraged an IDL that was in-house IDL, pretty similar to something like Protobuf. We provided an SDK that handled all of the sort of CICD, all of the sort of boilerplate code. It, we managed like, ensuring backwards compatibility um, and things like that. And all an engineer had to do was update the schema definition and then go to the place in their code where the source data was being emitted, add an event, and then we would automatically spin up a Kafka pipeline and topic. And then we would drop the Kafka data into Snowflake in our raw table. And then we would automatically parse that JSON and generate the table in a way that reflected the original schema design. And so we call that a data contract. This tool chassis um, sits on top of that system. And it catalogs all of the events that we have, the initial set of requirements, the contracts that were provided to the engineering team, what is being generated from schema registry and how it manifests to the warehouse. So anyone who's conducting any sort of analytics or machine learning can go to the central location. They can look up real world behaviors and the entities that they're associated with, and they can very easily trace those real world behaviors to data warehouse assets. Yeah, thanks for kind of working over the whole problem with CDC as well as like building that semantic layer, capturing entities, schema design, and putting the data contract and how you implement trusts on top of that. I also did some research about trusts and some of thought leadership on this topic of model business semantically. And he, like the first step of this whole process is like creating what do you call an ERD, Entity Relationship Diagram, if I recall correctly. And then from the rest for now, it's just like determining the ownership and then build a contract and then do the event implementation from that. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to do see like more business. It is like some sort of a more universal solution for companies to tackle this problem. Yeah, I think so. I think over time, I think Convoy is a bit more mature than other companies in this space. Right now, a lot of other companies are thinking about events only from the front end, the Mm -hmm. CDP. So you see tools like Segment and Mixpanel and Amplitude and Heap. Mm -hmm. But one of the problems with those tools is that they don't focus on events in the back end. They don't focus on what's being generated by services. And the service data is the source of truth. 
that's the data that in a trustworthy way, you can pipe it into a machine learning model. It needs to be correct. The other thing that is not really captured by any existing tool today is what we call CRUD updates. So in your service, uh, you know, you might always want to capture the status of a shipment whenever that shipment changes. But there may be many places in the code that initiate that status shipment change, but it is in, within the service where it contains all of those changes. So you might want to say, I want to omit an event every time a status is modified. And then I want to go into my code base and iteratively add these semantic events for every individual status chain. And in that way, not only do you know the current status of every entity that you have, and that's version controlled, it's treated as an API, it's never going to change out from underneath you and break your downstream queries. And then you also have this very sort of robust analytics surface where you can tie various events together and you can trust the upstream data equally well. So yeah, I think it's probably going to become a common pattern, but I think it will take a while, maybe within three to five years, people will start applying this method. Yeah, so thanks for sharing your totality issue on this topic. And uh, we'll talk more about semantic layer, matrix layer later on in our chat. But before that, I want to quickly post some of your totality issue on some of the technical problems that you and Cartel are building to the end-to-end data platform at Convoy. So you recently started a Substack newsletter and basically try to write content related to these different topics. Your first piece was about the existential threat of data quality, and it talks about the upstream and downstream data quality issue at Convoy. Yeah, can you just explain this issue in more detail? Sure. A lot of this ties into the problems with CDC. When we investigated data quality problems at Convoy, we found that they really fell into one of two buckets, upstream problems, downstream problems. Upstream problems occur when you have production databases that change. And because there's no contracts between the producer and the consumer, then the consumer, which is the warehouse, can be broken. And the producer doesn't know about it and doesn't really care about it. So this is one really large problem that happens affects machine learning models, it can break training data sets, it can break dashboards and reports, and this happens quite frequently. The other problem is downstream. And the downstream problem occurs when there's a lot of businesses that have invested in ELT, which is you're loading data from a variety of different sources, you're dumping it in the warehouse, and you're doing all the transformations downstream. And when you're living in that world, and you're not going back to the producer and ensuring you're, you're generating the right data that you need. Inevitably, data developers and analysts spend an ordinate amount of time writing SQL against this mess of mm. spaghetti code in the warehouse. Data people, unfortunately, are not trained in the same way software engineers are trained to write scalable code that's maintainable well-documented and robust. What happens is you get an enormous amount of queries that are not written very well, that capture important business concepts, which other teams take dependencies on. And that data is going to very quickly get out of date because it may not represent the current state of the business. It's going to break. It's going to cause really huge pipeline issues. And then 
you have the upstream problem and the downstream problem converging together. Mm-hmm. So the upstream, the production tables are breaking and they're breaking pipelines. The downstream tables are breaking and they're breaking pipelines. And what we call the modern data stack is then built upon this foundation of fundamentally broken data. And this is one of the main reasons why we find it's very hard to scale a data warehouse and why many teams find themselves in situations that they're frustrated working with data. It seems to always be on fire and, and they never have enough people to fix it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great transition to, to my next question. So you mentioned that one data stack is broken and like a characteristic of one data stack is that data warehouse seated center, right? And you have written about potential solution for this data quality issue with a concept you call immutable data warehouse, also referred to as ITP ETL. Yeah, so can you explain why modern data warehouse is broken and you, can you talk about how is the immutable data warehouse concept is different? Absolutely. I would say the reason the modern data warehouse is broken is due to the reasons that I, I just mentioned a second ago, right? Like you have all of these queries that are fundamentally being written in a really unscalable way and you have upstream producers that are not generating data in a scalable way. And maybe one additional problem on top of that is that nowhere in this life cycle did, are we really talking about the semantics of the data. So we're talking about data, but we're not talking about what that data means, how it's tied back to real world entities or events. We're not thinking about the life cycle of data and how that is reflective of the various life cycle of real world entities. And so all this context about what does the data actually represent gets lost. And it, it requires that, that data personnel spend weeks of time talking to people to understand how the business works before they can even begin writing queries against the warehouse. And it's just not scalable. And not only is it not scalable, but that was never what the data warehouse was intended to be. The data warehouse, as popularized by Bill Inman, was always intended to be first and foremost, a reflection of the real world. How does your business actually work? What are the entities that exist in your company and how do those entities interact with each other? What are the relationships between them? What is the real world behavior that then causes those entities to interact with each other? And then what can be derived from those interactions are metrics, right? We can derive margin, profit, volume growth, All of these core metrics can be derived from these real-world entities that are interacting with each other. Um, And so what the Immutable Data Warehouse is, is that it's a way to try to pivot back to the original definition of the data warehouse, but it does attempting to resolve a lot of the problems with the original data warehouse. And some of the problems with the original data warehouse are not in its design, but in its ability to scale, being able to do all of this mapping, all these relationships, generate all the real world data, it requires an architect, essentially a bottleneck. It usually doesn't work very effectively with extraordinarily large data volumes. The data is relatively small. You have a governance. And so that means that the model, there's a lot of upfront design and the model evolves relatively slowly. 
But the modern technology company and just the modern company in general doesn't evolve slowly. It evolves very quickly. Um, and so you have to be able to update your model. You have to be able to update your model in a collaborative way. You have to experiment and try new things and discover relationships over time. And fundamentally, that's what the immutable data warehouse is designed to do. It follows a model of implementing semantic events in the services of documenting those semantic events in a catalog of, and of then using this catalog of clean, high-quality source data to construct data domains. So data marts where you have uh, data products. You might have uh, a, a data product that is a, a shipments table. It's like a core dimensional table. And then event tables that are germane to the shipments entity. That's all owned by a, a single team that has a one-to-one -one mapping with the service that's generating that data. And then if anyone ever needs data about shipments, they know exactly where to go. And if the data that they need about shipments doesn't exist, then there's a the request-based workflow where they can just ask for the data that they need, and then the engineer can implement that data within their service. So this is a way to evolve the data warehouse in a really healthy, controlled, and iterative fashion. So yeah, in, in that article, that key thing, you already kind of talked to all these decision, like how immutable data warehouse works, and the key principle here, treating data like an API product, right? You have clear ownership of these different products and uh, designing just upfront costs about these different layers. And those, and that piece also talk about some of the challenges. Some of them you already mentioned, even paying, you have to figure out ways to implement new methods, sustainable rapid experimentation as well. I, I'm just curious, you have talked about this concept for a few months now. What's been some general reception from the data community about this concept? I think a lot of people are are very receptive to the ideas. I think most data folks can tell that something is not quite right in data warehousing today. It just doesn't feel right going into this extraordinarily messy data environment, having to spend weeks and weeks to write queries and figure out who owns what and there not being clear ownership at all and the data evolving in a really broken, chaotic way. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel clean. And in the world of product development, We actually do have a, a pretty solid framework of how we manage changes to any application. You build out a set of requirements. You go through a review process with your software engineer. Your software engineer implements those requirements. They put monitoring around the data. They care about, they check for bugs and errors and things like that. And then the consumer conducts a validation where they, they test out the product. And then they release it. And my perspective is that the data development needs to follow a very similar model of requests. And these requests are manifested as contracts. Engineers implement those contracts as APIs in production. And then we treat data as a product, one that's actually in the warehouse with clear domain owners. Yes, yeah, so like data development need to learn a lot from software development and borrow some of those principles and uh, super relevant to, to my next question. So you written quite a bit about the debt of data modeling due to some of the implementation friction because of messy data warehouse and you actually use the term data swam for this concept and also the lack of tooling to adopt actual principles for data. 
Would you mind narrating the demise of data modeling for the uninitiated? Yeah, absolutely. So if anyone isn't familiar, data modeling is the practice of finding relationships between your data sets. How are certain data sets connected to each other, which in itself is an abstraction of how real world entities and real world business concepts are connected to each other. And the two places where you can conduct a data modeling exercise, you can do data modeling at the design phase, which is before any data is published, right? This is when I talk about an ERD or an entity relationship diagram, this is what I'm talking about, where you are essentially creating your data model. What, what are the entities expressed as what primary keys and foreign keys? How are they related to other entities and all the properties that you need to record about each? And then there's modeling, there's the practical physical model as it's actually manifested into the warehouse and all the modeling that needs to happen when you're combining various source tables together and raw tables together in order to form like a cohesive layer that anyone in the company can access to do analytics. The reason that I say modeling has died is because, number one, the design phase for data has really gone out the window. And it's gone out the window largely because we moved to ELT, right? We've shifted to dumping a whole bunch of data that we get from production systems and various other places into a lake or a lake house environment. And so all of that preparation work that was previously done to very carefully and meticulously think about how do we need to collect data and what is the form that it needs to be in? And that's basically gone away. Um, so that really just leaves modeling, physical modeling in the warehouse and in the lake. And the challenge with that is if you don't have a way to connect those data models to some semantic context, it's not really clear why any particular data set should be joined together. It's not clear what that data set even represents. And it, and this is very frequently requires a data professional to deep dive into a lot of the modeling decisions that were made in the warehouse. Like why, what is this table? What, what does a single row in this table actually represent? Where is the source for this particular entity? What is the most, is this data even trustworthy or not? That's one of the reasons that the practice of modeling has, has died. A, it's because we just drop a lot of data into the warehouse and we don't do design. And then B, it's because since there's no way to iteratively build the warehouse, it becomes this big mess. And even though modeling might exist, you don't really know if it's the right way of doing it. You have a lot of data that are, that are replicated, a lot of data sets that are replicated, and there's no connection to the business context. Fabulous. Thanks for talking about all the details on, on this idea. At the end of that blog post, you actually wrote that you have some ideas on how you can resurrect data modeling, right? Yeah, would you mind sharing just some teaser on how you, you know, sneak peek of what you were thinking? Yeah. So like, fundamentally, there's a few things that people can do, I think, to really think about improving data modeling. The first thing is that data modeling often if you look back at its history, it follows a lot of technical frameworks. 
there's star schema, there's data marts, there's data vault, like all of these are like different methodologies about how to think of data modeling. The ERD is even one, I guess you could say. But at its core, one of the reasons that people don't do data modeling in today's day and age is because the design phase takes a very long time. And anything that takes a very long time in a business that's moving extremely quickly is probably going to be pushed to the side. Anything that is not an iterative process that can be changed over time is probably going to be pushed to the side. So the same way I was talking about the, the design of the data warehouse, not really facilitating iteration or collaboration, neither does the data modeling process. For the next phase of data modeling, the new version of data modeling, it needs to be collaborative. You need to bring in multiple stakeholders. It has to be fast. It has to be version controlled, which means iterative. And it has to be connected to, to business value as well. And I think the core point is it has to be low friction. And by low friction, what I mean is the cost uh, to start doing data modeling, whether it's the cost to educate yourself, to learn how to do it properly, the technical cost, the cost to bring the entire organization on board. If all of that is low, then it's very easy to justify the efficiency improvements and improvements in trust and quality better data modeling brings. But if it's still a long process, if it takes forever to educate people, if it's very technically complex, it will probably always be dead. Yeah, thanks for emphasizing that part about low friction. And we also talk about the idea of collaboration and iteration in the next few questions in a bit. And definitely excited to read part two of your, your, your series on data modeling. So I want to circle back on this concept that you talked about earlier about model business entities semantically. You have predicted that the, the knowledge layer will become one of the most important data investment any company will make in the next five years. Yeah, well, why do you think that this abstraction between the real world and production code is the missing piece in the modern data stack? The knowledge layer is, as you said, is a abstraction between the real world and production code. And... What the knowledge layer really refers to is a layer that describes in English or your language of choice, how the company works. What are all the important domains? What are all the important data attributes that are generated within each domain? What are the various steps in the life cycle of these various domains? So as an example, what is the life cycle of a payout? When is a payout generated? When can a payout be canceled and by whom and why? What happens when a payout is validated? After it's paid, are there any additional steps? Same thing with the life cycle of a shipment. Shipments at Convoy go through a very long and convoluted life cycle, right? At some point, it's at first generated by a shipper in the form of an RFP. If Convoy wins that shipment, eventually that shipment will be unlocked and placed into our marketplace. There will be various carriers who bid on the shipment. One carrier will win that particular auction. The shipment will then be released and made available to be picked up. The shipment ideally is then picked up. It has a certain ETA attached to it. It will be delivered over to a facility. And then once it's delivered, it will be validated and checked by the facility owner to ensure that the right, uh, the expected contents are there. And then eventually, the shipment will be confirmed by the shipper team. And there's many other steps in that life cycle that are important to know. 
and important to think about when you're conducting analysis of machine learning. And in many companies today, there is no layer that actually captures the way that the business operates. And without this layer, it has to be inferred based on data. Um, and that data is represented in tables and columns, which is not the appropriate way of understanding how the business operates. You will never be able to derive real world behavior from tables and columns, right? That's just not how our brains work. That's not the type of data that, that we capture. And so my expectation is that over time, we will have a knowledge layer. And this knowledge layer sits in between or it sits on top of our data ecosystem. And all the metadata that is generated by the knowledge layer is then passed down. It's inherited by data that maps to the various steps in the life cycles generated in the knowledge layer. So then if you're trying to understand what a particular data point is, instead of starting from the SQL, instead of starting from your data catalog, you're actually starting from the knowledge layer and you're working your way down. So if I want to understand what are all the various steps in the shipment life cycle, I go to the knowledge layer, I look at my shipments entity, um, explains to me how, you know, all these like various steps and I can connect those steps to events and I can connect those events to tables. That makes discovery way simpler. It makes leveraging the data way simpler. And it actually brings many different stakeholders into the data generation and usage process that are just not able to understand or comprehend the data model today. Yeah, thanks for painting that vision about how this layer unlock capabilities business to utilize more data. Just curious, have you seen any tools in the system that try to tackle this problem? No, I haven't seen any tools that, that try to tackle this problem, but this is one of the things that we are attempting to do with data contracts. So part of the reason that tools don't really do a great job at capturing this is because there's, if you're trying to manipulate data in the warehouse, you don't have a great incentive to add business level metadata to any central platform. You personally don't particularly benefit from it. And no individual team actually has the end-to-end -end insight for a single life cycle. Many different teams have to, have to participate in that process. And so there's a very large cost there. However, if you've shifted to an events-oriented architecture where teams are asking for data contracts to capture various stages in the life cycle, what that means is each team has to describe the event using semantic terms. They have to describe like what is happening what like in, in this particular event, when should it be captured? When does the event fire? What does it represent in the real world? Without that information, the engineer is not going to know what to implement. It also needs to be tied back to a central entity like a shipment or a carrier or a shipper. Now, as they request these contracts, our goal is to capture that metadata to automatically build relationships between these concepts, between entities and events. And that becomes the knowledge layer. So there is an inherent incentive to generate the knowledge layer because you get the data. You're able to do some analytics or machine learning. And the only way to get the data is to provide enough semantic information for the engineer to know what to produce. Yeah. I really like the part about that inherent incentive to create the knowledge layer. It's going to be beneficial for the long term. Yeah. Besides some of the technical issues, you also have been quite vocal about organizational issues in the data space. And you, you, you just brought up on your answer how to knowledge share 
and encourage deep collaboration between data producers and consumers. You have written this piece on your Substack about the data collaboration problem, which arises due to some of the implementation patterns of the modern data stack. So can you, yeah, just dive deeper into this problem? Yes. So the core of the collaboration problem is really that when it comes to generating data, there are many stakeholders. There are product managers and product managers have a need for data so that they can conduct analysis on their features. There are data developers that could either be instrumenting events in front-end systems, or they are building out tables and data marts in the data warehouse. And then you have software engineers that are producing first-party data that lives in, in production tables and is brought into the warehouse via CDC or some other ELT mechanism. And there's really no good form of communication and collaboration across those three stakeholders. They're all just doing whatever they want. The people who are building out the core tables in the warehouse oftentimes aren't the same people that are talking to the, the product teams uh, to develop data for their business use cases. The folks that are doing that, that are receiving requests from product teams are doing so in sort of vertical silos. So you might have a particular team like your payments team that are developing data sets for payments, but they're not talking to the teams that, that, that would be really interested in consuming data sets for payments. And so you get these gaps in the data that we have and the data people actually need to answer questions. And then you have software engineers that are really not talking to anybody about the data that they're generating. And yet this data is fundamentally critical to powering machine learning models and powering analytics and, and experiments and things like that. Yeah. So I think this data collaboration piece is one of the most important problems I think that can and should be solved in the next few years is how do you bring these various stakeholders into a single workflow? How do you get everybody onto the same page and speaking the same language when, when it comes to data? And then if that's happening, then people can determine what is the right workflow. If a product manager has asked for a particular metric, maybe it should be a data developer on their team bringing together tables to generate that data set. Maybe it should be a data developer on another team generating tables that the asking team can then depend on. Maybe it should be a software engineer producing events or generating additional attributes that the data developers can then put together. But without that shared language and that shared ecosystem, the silos are just going to result in increased uh, lack of communication and growing tech debt. Definitely. Thanks for emphasizing on that part about the workflow. I think in that piece, so talk about the issue with the modern data stack is they being built by like big tech, right, that already have highly matured ecosystem and these two are being used to solve very specific infrastructure issue you know, of that stack. They're not being desired to operate in a workflow, so it's just stitching together. It's different than even if the best of bridge solution is still going to be challenging to integrate. That's right. And the other thing that I would say about that is big tech, which is where most tech-oriented companies inherit a lot of their, their sort of um, 
development modalities are very different. They have a certain type of business model. Like a, a website like Wikipedia or Google, all of the data is coming in a pretty constrained environment. In Convoy's case, we are working with data from the real world. Like we're working with shipments that we don't necessarily control. We're working with customers that we don't necessarily control and facilities that we don't control. And um, emitting all of this data is not only quite challenging, but it's very challenging to understand the life cycle. A shipment can do a thousand, it can do infinite different things. It can take a linear path to completion. It can take a nonlinear path to completion. It can be canceled and then be reopened and then take a linear path to completion. You might have issues with that shipment in the contract. So the relationships between entities in a business model that marries sort of the technical world and the offline world actually has a, a much deeper need for um, collaboration because things can change at any moment and they have to be able to be iterated upon flexibly and based on semantics than in a business like Google, where you have a very, very sort of constrained environment that is tightly controlled by your applications. And there are very predictable ways that, that the application is going to be used. Thanks for highlighting that difference. Like incentives of big tech is very different from incentives of, of like your own organization. And actually, lend itself very well to my next question. So you've been quite an advocate of customer centricity for data infrastructure teams. What advice would you give for data organization to be more customer-centric? Honestly, the biggest advice I would give is to talk to your customers. Sometimes you don't even think about data consumers in our company as customers, but that's what they are. They're users of the products and services that, that we build and supply. So just talking to those individuals, I think, is incredibly valuable to do on a regular basis. Like you should be talking to data scientists, analysts, and non-technical stakeholders every single week. If you're not doing it every week, then you're not doing it enough. Requirements and needs and problems and pain points can change very quickly. Oftentimes, data teams are hyper-reactive, meaning they're focused on answering problems through, say, a ticketing system. And they get so wet over their heads with the number of tickets that they never really have time for innovation. They don't find themselves coming up for air where they can solve the underlying issues. And this is something we really tried to avoid at Convoy, which is how do we take more innovative approaches to the problems that our customers have? And sometimes that means saying, no, we're not going to spend three or four weeks solving a, a pre-existing data problem, or we're not going to spend a, a sprint or, or two sprints building out a specific pipeline on your behalf. The most valuable thing that we could do, just as an example, is we could figure out how to make pipeline development easier for everyone. And if we do that, maybe we're able to shave two or three days off any pipeline development implementation, and that can be self-service. And the value to the business is going to be significantly more massive than uh, a one-off, answering a one-off ticket. So that's the type of customer centricity. It doesn't necessarily mean doing everything your customers ask. Mm -hmm. It means really focusing on the problems that your customers have, finding those problems that could be solved by holistic solutions, and then investing in prioritizing those solutions and bringing the rest of the business on board with your ideas. Yeah, perfect. Thanks for sharing that answer. Focus on the problem and 
designing a more generalizable solution and prioritizing the one that have the highest business impact. Now, you also believe that great design should be the core of every product decision. What components of a high-quality data UX function should any centralized data team consider when developing data experience? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that the first thing to do, I could certainly tell you what I think all the components are, but um, I think if I had to recommend a, a mental model, it would be to talk to your customers and to understand what they think the stages of, of their data experience are. This is a really good exercise. The components that I come up with may be a little bit different than yours. So mine are, I think that there is a sort of a, a data definition phase. There's a connection to some source data. There's a, a design phase, which is a bit different from definition, right? Design is you're, you're planning, you're collaborating, you're you're testing how you want to configure your data assets. Definition is the actual process of generating those data assets. There's a deployment phase. So how do we move from the definition to shipping our data assets in production environments, whether it's the warehouse or a service? Then you've got monitoring, right? How do we ensure that the data is high quality? And if something fails, why does it fail? There's a stage around discovery as well of how do I actually find the data that I need to compose these data assets? And there's probably a communication step, which is how do I find the right person to talk to, to ask about more details and more business content. And what we did at Convoy, we essentially laid out all of these components and then we went data asset by data asset and asked ourselves if we had a good workflow in place for each asset. For example, do we have a good workflow from connecting to a source, to discovery, to design, to definition, to production for tables or metrics or machine learning features or experiments or machine learning models or events, right? Every single one of those can, it can have overlapping tool sets but some of the tool sets might be different. So I think that's a really healthy ex exercise to start thinking deeper about data UX. Yeah, thanks, thanks a lot for quacking these different components. And yeah, I'm uh, mm, fascinating to see that, how much data I can learn from other more mature industry. You talk about software and now we talk about design. A lot of expression that can be applied. Step back on some of these more high level thought leadership concept. I want to circle back into your, your career. So besides being a head of the platform team at Convoy, you actually also scout for venture firms investing in the data space, like Cowboy Ventures, Innovation in Davos, Sequoia Capital, as well as being an LP at SNVC. What is the mental framework you have been using to evaluate potential investments? So the framework that I really think about is, so the first thing is, are you solving a, a true customer problem? Is the business that you're suggesting a vitamin or is it a pain pill? Meaning, is it something that's nice to have? Or is it something that you desperately need? Because if you don't have, your customer is going to be in pain. They're going to have a bad experience. And I tend to focus a lot more on the latter as a type of investment. 
The second thing that I think is really important that I use for evaluation is how well do you understand your customer? And just as important as the user is the buyer, right? So let's say that um, someone is pitching me some like this amazing new system and it's going to totally redefine the way that people do transformation or the way that they do pipeline development. And then the question that I would have for them, is your customer really going to love your product so much that they're going to rip out uh, everything that they've already built over the last couple of years and use your product exclusively instead? Most people don't feel comfortable doing that. That's an extraordinarily large amount of work. And it's an extraordinary amount of work that eventually gets wasted. And those types of uh, owners, those, those data folks, have to go and explain to their leadership why the big project that they spent 10 years working on, they're now going to replace with a startup that's, that's existed for three months. It calls into question if they made the right investments. So those are the types of, do you really understand your customer? Do you really understand like, how somebody would use this product? And is it a deep enough pain point that they would be willing to take a risk on a relatively early company? Those are the things that I tend to focus on rather than the technical sophistication of the tool. I think having a great team is really important. I mainly focus on the problem space. Perfect. Yeah, thanks for providing that checklist. Also, just based on your experience scouting these different ideas in the data infrastructure space, from a more like in investing lens, like how do you see this space evolve in terms of evolution of money and maturity of adoption? Snowflake and Databricks have yeah. really changed venture capital's perception on data infrastructure. Snowflake, yeah. biggest tech IPO of all time. I think people have realized that data investments can be massive. There is extraordinary potential for scale. Companies are just using more and more data, not less. They're doing more and more machine learning, artificial intelligence, and analytics, not less. These things are ramping up exponentially. So I think the future for data products looks great. However, I would say that it's really easy to get caught up in solving a solution that we think is good rather than a solution that truly solves a real customer problem at scale. There's a lot of smart engineers in this space and it's easy to fall in love with the technical idea, mm-hmm. but I would prefer a, a idea that was, was simple and had a great user experience and just really solved the problem and made a workflow in data like way easier and 10 times better than an incredible technical product that no one really desperately needs. Yeah, that, that's a great answer. I think that touched on all of the parts you talk about, the yeah, collaboration, the design UX, the knowledge layer, and as well as customer centricity. So I want to round up, I'm in conversation on a personal note. So you've written on LinkedIn before that internal product manager can be an ideal position for future entrepreneurs. Reflecting on your career, championing internal products, what have been some of the most valuable skills that you acquire? Just being able to have technical conversations with our customers has been really awesome. Seeing things from their perspective, understanding the customer journey of multiple stakeholders all at the same time and being able to tie these workflows together. I would say having to go and sell our efforts to a leadership team. A lot of people don't like doing that, but when you have to go and sell something, and advocate for what you need to build, especially if it's something that's very hard to measure, 
you get very good at communicating abstract value. Uh, those, are, those are probably the two things that I think have been most valuable for me is having all these conversations with different technical customers and then communicating very abstract value propositions to our leadership team. Perfect. Thanks for sharing that. So Chad, at this point of conversation, I want to move into the final closing segment in which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions and then you can provide quick answers to the listeners. Number one, named people in the broader data community whose work you admire. Uh, I would say Bar Moses from Mari Carlo, Juan Sequeira from Data.World, and Adrian Kruziger from Convoy. Number two, name one book you would recommend for data practitioners to cultivate product-centric thinking. I would say Agile Data Warehouse Design by Lawrence Kaur. And then finally, imagine that you can send out a single message to all the early-stage data product managers on LinkedIn. What could your message be? Talk to customers and think about the end-to-end workflow. Fabulous. I think that's a great way to end our conversation. So Chad, I really enjoyed talking with you today, learning about your earlier journey in journalism, your entry into the world data, the conversion rate optimization, your early specialization in experimentation, your current journey building up the data platform at Convoy, various technical discussion related to their discovery, experimentation, CDC, data quality, immutable data warehouse, the data modeling, the knowledge layer, data collaboration, customer centricity, and data UX. I'll be sure to input everything that we discussed today in the channels so our listeners can have a chance to follow up, take a look, and learn more about some of your top leadership on this topic. And yeah, excited to learn more following your, your newsletter and reading more about some of the upcoming vocation work that you do on how this space can evolve. So Chad, really enjoy this conversation and I hope you have a great rest of your evening. Thank you. Great being here. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.